Starting in December, Southern California Edison is planning to bury San Onofre's 3,600,000 pounds of high-level radioactive waste on the beach, only 36 yards from high tide, in thin-walled canisters that are known to have serious problems. They're trying to make it sound like everything is A-OK. But then, when you hear a genuine expert talk about the 51 canisters already on site that are filled with radioactive waste, and she says... We have 51 canisters at San Onofre right now. No one knows if they have cracks in them. No one knows how deep the cracks are, and they have no way to find them. A Chernobyl's worth of cesium, a Chernobyl disaster's worth of cesium is in one can. So basically what you have is a Chernobyl disaster in each can. That's eventually going to be 124 cans of Chernobyl. So when you hear information like that, you begin to understand exactly how hot that seat is that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Donna Gilmore of SanOnofreSafety.org, and she walks us through the frightening scenario unfolding just south of Los Angeles. That's where Southern California Edison is about to store 73 more canisters of high-level radioactive waste within 36 feet of a normal high tide. Yeah, I know. Chernobyl in a can. No bueno. Plus, we will have nuclear news from around the world. Numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than will probably be discussed around American Thanksgiving tables. All this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. New information on a story we first reported on last week on Nuclear Hot Seat regarding a Russian radioactivity leak 986 times higher than usual recorded in the Ural Mountains in Russia. Just today, Tuesday, November 21st, Russian authorities confirmed reports of a spike in radioactivity the Russian Meteorological Service saying that it recorded the release of ruthenium-106 last September and classified it as extremely high contamination. France's Nuclear Safety Agency earlier this month said that it recorded radioactivity in the area between the Volga River and the Ural Mountains from a suspected accident involving nuclear fuel or the production of radioactive material. 
at the time, Russia's state-controlled Rosatom Corporation, said in a statement that there had been no radiation leak from its facilities. How very Russian of them. But the Russian Meteorological Office's report noted high levels of radiation in the villages adjacent to Rosatom's Mayak plant for spent nuclear fuel. Mayak officials continued to deny being the source of the contamination. But Mayak has been responsible for at least two of Russia's biggest radioactive accidents, including in 2004, when it was confirmed that waste, radioactive waste, was being dumped in the local river. Ruthenium-106 is a very hot, fairly short-lived nuclear isotope with extremely dangerous characteristics to humans and life in general. Beyond the fact that something radioactive happened, what is shocking is that the media and governments in Europe have not said anything about this accident or given any indications to the populace that they need to do anything to protect themselves. CREARAD, the Commission of Independent Research and Information on Radioactivity, issued a statement that said, At the European level, to our knowledge, no instructions have been given to mobilize the network of measurements and analytical laboratories. No official information has been released. No warning has addressed to European nationals traveling or residing in regions potentially at risk. Greenpeace said in a statement also on November 21st that it would petition the Russian Prosecutor General's office to investigate, quote, a possible concealment of a radiation accident, end quote. Meanwhile, if you're anywhere in that part of the world, please take every possible precaution. As the pit bull leaders of the U.S. and North Korea continue to snarl at each other, and threaten nuclear obliteration. A top U.S. general has said that he would resist an illegal, put that in quotes, nuclear order from Donald Trump. Air Force General John Hyten of the U.S. Strategic Command, or STRATCOM, was responding to a question about testimony by former STRATCOM commander, retired General Robert Keller, before Senate Foreign Relations Committee earlier this week. Keller said that nuclear operators would refuse to implement an unlawful order. General Hyten agreed and argued that the process in place to launch a nuclear strike would prevent such a situation from arising in the first place. As head of STRATCOM, Hyden is responsible for overseeing the U.S. nuclear arsenal. But this raises the question. Donald Trump is followed around by the nuclear football and is well known to be empowered to unilaterally decide to launch a nuclear attack anywhere in the world. There are even bills in Congress, both the House and the Senate, the Lou Markey bills, to remove the unilateral ability to call for a first strike of a nuclear weapon from the hands of any sitting president. Could this possibly be a counter-move? to take the heat off that argument and stop Congress from proceeding on those bills? So what would constitute an illegal nuclear order, except any impulse to actually use one of those monster weapons in the first place? General Hyten assures us that he has been trained every year for decades in the law of armed conflict, which takes into account specific factors to determine legality, necessity, distinction, proportionality, unnecessary suffering, and more. 
This raises so many questions we do not have time to get into right now. But almost immediately, other experts warned that individual objections, such as the ones voiced by Heitner, could be overcome by a commander-in-chief determined to launch an attack. According to Brian McKeon, a senior policy advisor in the Pentagon during the Obama administration, if the order came and a commander proved reluctant to execute that launch, quote, you either get a new secretary of defense or get a new commander. The implication is that one way or another, if the commander-in-chief wants a nuclear first strike attack, he will get it. A new study from the University of Hawaii at Manoa and released on October 31st, Halloween, extremely appropriate, shows that Hawaii was hit with up to 200 times more Fukushima fallout than expected or reported at the time. One week after the March 11, 2011 Fukushima nuclear triple meltdown began, Signature isotopes of cesium-134 and 137 were detected in aerosols over the state of Hawaii and in milk samples analyzed on the island of Hawaii. This study estimated the magnitude of cesium deposition in the soil collected in 2015 to 2016, resulting from this atmospheric fallout. The research confirmed and quantified the presence of Fukushima-derived fallout in the state of Hawaii in amounts higher than predicted by models and observed in the United States mainland. From the findings, it is estimated that over a trillion backrolls of nuclear waste fell on Hawaii. And two entries into the intentional obfuscation of nuclear information, policy that seems to be sweeping the world, the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation has removed data from its website about the amount of low-level radioactive waste going into landfills. The information had been open to the public for years before the department said it was confidential. We do know that more than 5 million pounds of low-level radioactive waste has been released into state landfills between 2014 and 2016, according to information the department no longer publishes, but was accessed through cached versions of its website. And even as the Defense Nuclear Facilities Safety Board reports that an unfinished $16.8 billion complex to treat chemical and radioactive waste at the Hanford site in central Washington continues to suffer design problems that risk explosions and radioactive releases from unintended nuclear reactions, they're facing a loss of funding. The Trump administration is considering a proposal to downsize or abolish the board, which for nearly 30 years has provided independent oversight of defense nuclear sites around the country. According to Dirk Dunning, a retired Oregon Department of Energy engineer who worked on Hanford issues for more than 20 years, they don't want to hear what the board has to say, but they absolutely need to. So do the rest of us. I wonder what they're planning to hide next. Regarding the repeated incorrect claim that Russia obtained, quote, 20% of U.S. uranium, former White House energy advisor Bob Alvarez says the so-called 20% of America's uranium that has right-wing nuts so spun up adds up to 0.003% of the uranium sold in the world in 2016. 
The 20% claim involved the sale of less than 400 metric tons over a three-year period. By way of comparison, the U.S. government holds title to about 59,000 metric tons of natural uranium, of which 22% of that stockpile comes from Russia. We'll have a link up to a larger explanation of this issue on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 335, where you will also find a link to the latest article in Huffington Post by Carl Grossman, Nuclear Power in Space in the Time of Trump. Regarding Japan and Fukushima, the New York Times published an article entitled, Six Years After Fukushima, Robots Finally Find Reactors Melted Uranium Fuel. It's written by Martin Fackler, who is the New York Times Tokyo bureau chief, and contains some interesting languaging. The article reports in great detail about a new robot that managed to get into the center of the heavily damaged Unit 3 reactor and beam back video of a gaping hole in the bottom and the floor beneath it with clumps of what looked like solidified lava. These are the first images ever taken inside the plant and are claimed to be melted uranium fuel. The article says, Uranium fuel rods liquefied like candle wax, meaning during the accident, dripping to the bottom of the reactor vessels in a molten mass hot enough to burn through the steel walls and even penetrate the concrete floors below. This makes it sound like all the fuel was concentrated there, and in a moment you'll hear why that's not so. The New York Times article goes on to say, Now that engineers say they have found the fuel, officials of the government and the utility that runs the plant hope to sway public opinion. The officials hope to persuade a skeptical world that the plant has moved out of post-disaster crisis mode and into something much less threatening, cleanup. But this does not take into account the explosions that occurred at Unit 3. And the fact that according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the United States, as reported by Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education, plutonium was found more than one mile off-site from inside the reactor. That could only have come from inside the plant, meaning that some of the fuel, and we know not how much, was exploded out into the surrounding countryside. And according to two of the keenest observers in the nuclear hot seat research community, Hervé Courtois of nuclear-news.net and several other sites said, TEPCO got some footage in July of what they assumed to be some remains of melted fuel, very little actually, meaning that most of the melted fuel has not been located, and since July, the situation has not changed. And Ray Masalis, an independent researcher, said, I see lots of concrete rubble, but the top two stories blew off of reactor number three, and the refueling crane landed in there. Where's the fuel? Nine nuclear reactors in Japan have been shown to use products manufactured by Kobe Steel, which has admitted fabricating product quality data. The utilities running those reactors have told Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority that this poses no safety problems. Yeah. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. According to the University of Bristol, new research based on a totally made-up new formula suggests that few people, if any, should be asked to leave their homes after a 
big nuclear accident just down the block. I wonder how much nuclear industry funding went into that study. One Professor Philip Thomas of the University of Bristol used a judgment or J value to balance the cost of a safety measure against the increase in life expectancy it achieves. That's right, the days of your life now have a price tag on it determined by somebody in alignment with the nuclear industry. Now, they admit the J-value is a new method pioneered by said Professor Thomas that assesses how much should be spent to protect human life and the environment. How about every penny you've got? No surprise that, as examples, the researchers found that it was difficult to justify relocating anyone from Fukushima Daiichi. And if you read through their gobbledygook about Chernobyl, only 900 people really deserve to be evacuated. No doubt this J-value, or judgment value, is going to be used by governments around the world to justify not spending anything to protect people or the environment. It's on par with the blatant lie that nuclear is quote-unquote carbon-free when what it is is radiation-expensive and cancer-risk. And that's why Professor Philip Thomas and Bristol University and all the rest of the universities that were bribed to be part of this latest bit of pro-nuclear propaganda, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have today's featured interview in just a moment. But first, I am grateful at this time of year for expressing gratitude. I'm grateful for the support that you, the listeners, continue to give to Nuclear Hot Seat throughout the year. Without your help, this show would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for the information you get from Nuclear Hot Seat, show your support by sending us a donation to help us meet our regular expenses. That's monthly, quarterly, and yearly. Be it a one-time donation or a sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps keep honest, verifiable nuclear information flowing out to you, the listeners. We make it easy for you to help us out. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. You can send us a one-time donation or a monthly donation of any size that way. And if you'd like to make an inexpensive, no-fuss, really easy donation on a regular basis, we've set up a quick way for you to do so to send the show a monthly $5. Now that's the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. So buy a nuclear hot seat a cup of coffee. I promise you I won't drink it. It will go toward supporting the show. Just go to the website and click on the big green donate button and know that whatever you can afford to do, you are helping to combat the nuclear menace in all of its many forms with solid, footnoted, reliably sourced information. That makes me deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Southern California Edison is planning to bury San Onofre's 1,800 tons. That's 3,600,000 pounds. I love the way they always talk in the smaller number, not the larger number, 
of high-level radioactive waste on the beach only 36 yards from normal high tide. And this does not take into account storm surges and ocean rise due to global warming. So storing that much high-level nuclear waste that close to the ocean is perhaps not the best idea in the world, you think? That's why this week's guest and her work are so important. Donna Gilmore is the founder and head of SanOnofreSafety.org. The website is a public resource for factual information about the serious safety issues with the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station and the tons of nuclear waste stored just a few miles south of San Clemente, California. Most of the information on her site is from official government and scientific documents. Donna is my go-to person for safety issues regarding San Onofre, and what she has to share today is a shocker. We spoke on Monday, November 20th, 2017. Donna Gilmore, so great to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. I really uh, appreciate you inviting me. You have such great guests. I feel privileged. Well, you fit right in there, Donna. Regarding San Onofre, bring us up to date on the current situation there, specifically regarding the radioactive waste. Right now, San Onofre has 51 canisters uh, filled with nuclear waste. They're up to 14 years old. They're planning to start loading 73 more canisters um, starting sometime in December. It'll take a while to load all of them, so it'll, it'll be over a couple of years that it will take. The canisters are a little over half inch thick. They're five-eighths of one inch thick uh, stainless steel. and Edison admits, Southern California Edison admits that these canisters can crack in salt air environment, and they admit they currently have no way to find cracks. The company that is making the the new uh, thin, what we call thin wall canisters, admits even a microscopic through wall crack will release millions of curries of radioactivity into the environment. And there's no feasible way to repair them, even if you can find a crack. In spite of all this, Edison is moving forward. I intervened, and myself and some others intervened at the Public Utility Commission to try and stop Edison from giving them the, the millions of dollars to buy more of these inferior canisters. Most of the rest of the world uses thick wall metal casts. They're anywhere from 10 inches to 19 and three quarter inches thick, but Edison refused to consider those. So at the Coastal Commission, I made a, it made a cost-based case that these containers are not going to last, and Edison is, has no money in the plan, in their plan to replace them. In spite of that, the Coastal Commission approved giving them the money and just ignored those issues. How much radioactive material is in each of these canisters or is projected to be placed in each of these canisters? Right. Well, there's approximately similar amount of radioactive cesium-137. It's a lethal form of radiation. A Chernobyl's worth of cesium, a Chernobyl disaster's worth of cesium in each canister. So the 1986 Chernobyl disaster 
is in one ten. This is a, a approximate number. It could be some a little more, some a little less. So basically what you have is a Chernobyl disaster in each can. So it's not a Chernobyl reactor in a can. It's the amount of radiation that was released from the Chernobyl uh, disaster in 1986. This is a very serious issue. Edison does not, if they have a leak in these canisters, which could happen in as little as 17 years based on NRC evidence, they have no plan to deal with that. They have no way to find the leaks. They have no way to fix the leaks. They have no way to do anything with that container. But what I have learned is they had one of their vendors, the Arriva New Homes vendor that makes the that made the existing 51 canisters. They're having their vendor go to the NRC and ask to change their license so that they no longer have to report radiation levels from the outlet air vents. Because these canisters are so thin, they don't protect from gamma rays and neutrons, as other kinds of radiation. So so they have to be stored in thick wall, concrete casts, mainly concrete casts. They are either an upright design or in the case of San Onofre, the current ones are in a horizontal looking uh, mausoleum. And then the new Holtec ones that Edison chose is, are a kind of a half below ground system. These concrete storage systems for the canisters, they have air vents in them for convection cooling. If they didn't have cooling, the, the fuel would overheat. So what you have is you have one vent where cooler air goes in, and then as heat rises, that's where the air, hot air goes out, which is just simple convection cooling. So the heat that is happening, that's from environmental circumstances or that's from the- It's coming from the fuel. Yeah, the fuel fuel generates heat. I mean, this stuff is radioactive, it's active. And so it it not only generates radiation, it's thermally hot. So that has to be air-cooled once they take it out of the pools. The, The fuel, most of the fuel right now is still in the spent fuel pools. With this fuel, it either has to be stored deep underwater or in some kind of a, a dry storage container. When they take the fuel out of the pool, it's still, uh, at least at San Onofre, in most locations, it's still really thermally hot in addition to being highly radioactive. So it has to continue to be cooled when it's in dry storage. And with the design, this thin canister design that Edison and others have chosen, they have to heat it by having air vents in, in the concrete overpass. hope that makes sense. And, well, it makes no sense in terms of anything logical or sane. Well, that's but, true, yeah. But yeah. your explanation makes sense out of the fact that it doesn't make sense. So if there's a through-wall crack, it means radiation is going to flow. It'll go in the outlet. It'll go in the outlet air vents where the warm air goes out. And I even confirmed this with a San Onofre employee. I said, well, if they have a three-wall crack, won't the higher radiation levels be going at the outlet air vent? He said, yeah, like it was no big deal. One of the high-risk ones at San Onofre and other places located by the ocean, such as Diablo Canyon up in San Luis Obispo, is moist salt air. These containers are susceptible to crack initiation from moist salt air. 
and that can happen in as little as two years based on evidence from Diablo Canyon, where they found a two-year-old canister there. They can't inspect for cracks because they have no way to do that. But they took the temperature in various spots of the canister to see if it was low enough for moisture to stay on the canister, and it was. It's just a two-year-old canister filled with, you know, hot fuel. And they also brushed the surface to find corrosive particles, and they found corrosive salt particles. And so if you have salt and if that deliquesces or dissolves on the surface of the canister, that is a major trigger to start cracking in stainless steel. That's just one of the, the causes. So that's what they found at Diablo, a low enough temperature for moisture to dissolve salt on the canister. So, so, so theoretically, what? you could have a canister start to crack in, say, a couple of years, and then based on the evidence the NRC provided, this Coburg nuclear plant in South Africa had a comparable container, and it leaked from cracking from salt air in only 17 years. So, you know, so we're talking potentially less than 20 years, these could start leaking. They could already be cracking. We have 51 canisters at San Onofre right now. No one knows if they have cracks in them. No one knows how deep the cracks are, and they have no way to find them. And in terms of will we know, will we know when they start leaking? Well, Edison is requesting, having their vendor request, that they don't have to measure radiation levels at the outlet air vents. So that will mean that they'll be able to hide the level of radiation coming out of these canisters if they're leaking. So in other words, the only way we'll be able to tell that there's a radiation leak problem at San Onofre is when the upper-level executives of Southern California Edison move to their sheep ranches down in New Zealand. I, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to figure out how they think. I wouldn't even guess what they'll do. But in addition, to make it worse, the NRC only requires that they even monitor radiation once every three months, once a quarter. So now they're not even going to check the outlet vents. And to make it even worse, they're requesting that the NRC allow them to destroy the spent fuel pools once they empty it out. The pool is the only approved method they have on site to deal with problem canisters is with the pool. And they want to get rid of it as soon as all the fuel is out. And it's all about the saving money because it saves them a lot of money to not have to keep the pools. So they're painting us into a corner that we cannot get out of should something go wrong with any of these canisters with a radiation release down the line, which we're only talking at this point about 14, 17, 20 years or so. This is going well, to be radioactive for, for hundreds if not thousands well, of years. Well, they, they've been loaded. Yes, right. Yeah, and we're talking short term. They have no plan, and they originally, Edison has these meetings every few months, public meetings, to give us status updates. And every time we ask, what are you going to do if there's a through-wall crack? What are you going to do? First, they said, oh, well, we're going to have a, this portable hot cell, this portable building, and we'll put a leaking canister in there. Well, I researched it and found out there is no such thing in the whole country, and it's not even feasible to have one big enough 
to move fuel from one to another. And in terms of even a stationary hot cell facility big enough to do this, there was one available at Oak Ridge called the TAN facility. They tore that down so they didn't have to maintain it. But most people don't even know that that TAN hot cell facility was torn down. But even if you could get that leaking canister into another container like a transport cast, it does not meet NRC regulations to transport a leaking canister, you know, on our roads and rail system, which is common sense, you know. So it's crazy. The, really, the only the only thing they should be doing is they should stop what they're doing now. Don't buy any more thin wall canisters. What they need to be doing is going out to bid for thick wall casts, similar to what's used in most of the rest of the world, including it in Japan. The, they have thick casts that survive Fukushima because they don't have the cracking issue. They can be inspected inside and out. You can examine the contents of what's inside. So if, if, if when you do need to move them or if you want to ensure that the contents are staying in place and aren't falling apart inside, in case you need to replace it, these, the fuel assemblies are held in these basket slots. In fact, Japan found out that these aluminum alloy fuel baskets that hold each fuel assembly separate from the other, that they determine after they inspect them, they aren't going to last 60 years, so they ban the use of aluminum baskets. Well, guess what kind of fuel baskets are used in our canisters? Aluminum. Donna, this raises an enormous question. It seems like there couldn't be a more consistent chain of incompetency in terms of the construction of the canisters, the selection of the canisters, the approval of the canisters, and now the planned implementation of these canisters, which seem to be fated at some time in the not-too-distant future to create a real nightmare here in Southern California in terms of a radiation leak. How has this been allowed to progress this far? How have all the necessary permissions and approvals been given to let it get this far out of control? Well, what you have is you have another captured organization. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has jurisdiction and they have authority over states. There's no state authority for radiological issues. The NRC has approved containers that don't even meet their regulations. The NRC Nuclear Regulatory Commission has made up five commissioners they're appointed by the president, but they have to be confirmed by the Senate. When Obama was president, he could only get one out of the five as a safety conscious that would put safety over, over industry profits. And each one of those five, they all have an equal vote. So the, the industry has major influence over what happens at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And then at the state level, the Public Utility Commission could have stopped this and said, because I made a totally cost-based case at the Public Utility Commission. What is a cost-based analysis? The California Public Utility Commission has 100% jurisdiction over cost. The NRC is safety, so it's totally up to the Coastal Commission to decide, is this a prudent use of ratepayer money? And so the case that I made at the Public Utility Commission was to say 
Edison's estimate for how much money they need for dry storage of this fuel waste is inadequate because they did not allow for the fact that these are going to prematurely crack and need to be replaced. There's no money in there to do that. But the judge in her ruling said that Miss Gilmore made a meritorious case, which means in legal terms that I made my case, but then says, well, this is out of scope to the proceeding, ruled it out of scope. So we're in fantasy land now with the Public Utility Commission. So then we move to the California Coastal Commission for a coastal permit. The waste is being stored within, you know, within about 100 feet from the beach. So that falls in the Coastal Commissions. And they needed a Coastal Commission permit to put these new 73 canisters there in this new system. And the Coastal Commission, they were educated. The staff report, I, I actually was able to educate the staff on all the issues with these canister system, they did not know. Edison wasn't telling them. So I gave them the evidence. And in the staff report, they put in there, not Donna Gilmore said, but these are the facts that these canisters are cracked. They can't be transported with cracks. All those, the issues with the canisters were in there. The Coastal Commission voted to give them a permit anyway and said, well, we'll put some special conditions on here that they have to be able to figure out all these problems and solve them. And these canisters need to be transportable because at some part they're going to need to be moved away from the coast. So they also need to be transportable. But they didn't require those conditions be met for 20 years. So in other words, for the next 20 years, we will be stuck with these thin canisters. I refer to them as tin cans. That's a metaphor. But we're going to be stuck with them with all of the risks before they will implement a moving of these camps. That's that's just a promise. Based on the research I've done, I'm using, you know, the government's own documents and other scientific documents. They're not going to be able to, to fix these. They don't have a plan. You know, nothing's going to change in 20 years. And I asked the Coastal Commission staff, I said, well, what's going to happen in 20 years if they still can't do this? Well, we'll deal with that then. You know, what, I mean. (laughs) They're not dealing with it now. They're literally kicking the can down the road. Yeah, and at the the meeting where they granted the permit, uh, you know, I've got a video on a San Onofre Safety homepage where you will see a Commissioner Schallenberger grilling. She called Mark Lombard, who at the time was the NRC Director of Spent Fuel Management. He's the top manager that approves these canisters. She called him back up to the podium and said, are these inspectable? And he, he well, you can, you can watch the video. I mean, she, she under, obviously understands the problem. And he, he took a while before he admitted and inspecting these is not a now thing, were his words. And I was not allowed to speak after that because inspecting is only one step. Then what do you do if you find cracks? That didn't get discussed. So the, the system is just, you know, it's not a good system. And so a number of us are planning to request that permit be revoked. I don't know what kind of odds we're going to have uh, to make that happen, but the Coastal Commission has a process. There are new commissioners that weren't around when that decision was made. I noticed there seemed to be some interest. 
So what seems to help is the more people that will contact the Coastal Commission asking for that sign over permit to be revoked, the more people that we can get to do that, the more that's going to help the case. Uh, now, to facilitate that on the Santa Ana Safety Home page, there's a petition to sign and to get others to sign. There's a handout to share and educate others. So that's an action item that, that people can do now. That's something that we will have linked up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 335, so that people can get to the petition. And you made a comment to me when we were talking before the recording. The petitions can be signed online, or do we have to do it the old-fashioned way of printing them out and getting physical signatures on them? The one on San Onofre Safety, you do have to print this out, and I'm asking you to collect and the number of signatures that don't have it set up to be automated. I know Gary Hedrick has one. What's good about downloading and sharing this petition is it gives you an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people. I have found just electronic correspondence on this is not as effective in educating people. This information is so unbelievable, it's hard for people to even comprehend that this could actually be be true. And it's more effective that you can actually start talking to people and grow our numbers that way. I mean, this is an issue that's not going away. This is worth more than just getting the permit revoked. It's about getting people educated about what's going on in our community. These canisters are located all around the country, not just here. So part of this is putting pressure on the Coastal Commission to revoke the permit, but it's also about getting the word out about how dangerous this waste is and how much at risk we are for having uh, Chernobyl disasters in a can start linking here and around the country. So you're saying that these canisters are in use or are going to be in use around the country so that the problem that we're dealing with here at San Onofre could be duplicated at any one of tens or perhaps dozens of other nuclear reactors that happen to be facing onto salt water. There are over 2,000 of these Chernobyl disasters in a can, 2,000 of these Chernobyl cans around the country. We've got them at Diablo Canyon, in San Luis Obispo area. We've got them at Rancho Seco near Sacramento. We've got a few up at Humboldt. We've got them in Illinois, New York, just about every, every single place that's had a nuclear reactor. Now, I have a, a two-page summary sheet, inventory sheet, that actually is a list of all the locations, every state these are in, and whether they have the thin wall canisters or if they have the better thick wall ones, and it tells you the date they were first loaded in your state. So you have an idea of how much you should be concerned at this point. I would say, if not panic, certainly a high level of concern deserves to be shared by others because what we're facing here is part of the ticking time bomb of this technology that is down the line. And the problems that could happen here at San Onofre are reflected in every last one of these. And that's pretty horrifying, over 2,000 of these Chernobyl in a can 
canisters around the country. Yes, Maryland has uh, Calvert Cliffs, and Maryland um, has the oldest, some of the oldest ones. They're actually up to, I forget, about 24 years old right now. I'm kind of surprised they haven't already started to have leaks, but the fact that the Areva New Homes vendor is, has asked to not have to check radiation levels at the outlet vents, you know, who, who knows what's really going on. I mean, I, I can't say what's happening. I can't say if they're leaking or not, but they are definitely, the odds are higher as these get older that they're going to start leaking. And how many years is this material going to remain hot and needing to be contained and under control? Radioactive. Radioactively hot, you know, as far as we're concerned, it's forever. A lot of these materials, they have to be kept away from mankind and the environment for half a million, million years that we're talking. You know, as far as we're concerned, it's forever. I mean, let's, let's get real here. You know, our country hasn't existed that long. So this we're talking generations into the future. So for about 30, 40 years of power, we're leaving our children and their children and their children, and we're leaving them this destiny of waste that's got to be kept for thousands of years away from everything. And right now we're dealing with canisters that can only be trusted at most for 20 years before we face potential disaster from them. So I actually intervened in a couple of nuclear regulatory commission. They were going to approve this uh, new model of the Holtec and of the Areva canisters. And I submitted comments. And one of my comments was these canisters, you know, now these canisters have cracking issues and you have no plan to deal with that uh, reason for them to, to not approve any more of them. And they said, well, aging is out of scope to the license. They don't consider age. I am serious. I've got that in writing. They actually put it in writing. They do not consider aging issues when they approve it for the initial 20 years. I'm stupefied. It, it, it is unbelievable. If I didn't have it in writing, I, I wouldn't believe it. I, I told Commissioner Florio this at the pre-conference to the decommissioning proceeding. I said that in that meeting, and his whole body shook. You know, he couldn't, I mean, like somebody hit him with electric prod. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. But then, what did he do? I mean, didn't stop it. When you say you've got this in writing, is it an email? Is it something on a piece of paper? No. The NRC, when they approve a storage container, an amendment to a storage container, they post it in the Federal Register for a uh, review period, 30 or 60 days. Then when they make it final, if there were any significant comments, they will pull it. And, and that's what they did on the ones that I oppose. They actually pulled them from approval. And then when they finally approved it anyway, they put in all the reasons why they approved it anyway. And when I asked about the aging problems with the cracking, they put in writing in this in the Federal Register in the approval document to that comment that it, considering aging management is out of scope for the first twenty year license. So this is in the official approval document. Donna, for those of us who are, let's just put it mildly, alarmed by this information, what 
can we do? Is this a time for protest marches on the beach? Is this time for calling representatives? Is this time for going to the California Public Utilities Commission? What can we do? In California, in in addition to signing the petition and, and sharing the information on standing over safety with them, call your representative, your elected official offices, be it city, state, or federal, and educating them on this issue. And I, I have handouts on Santa Ana Free Safety that are designed just for this. It, it's time to educate the elected officials, educate anybody with power and influence that can, that can do something about this, because people don't know. They just plain don't know about this. Well, they will now. This is not going to be an easy battle to win, but we have to win this fight. We risk losing our communities permanently. We're talking permanent evacuation here. This isn't some leak that's going to go away. Once you contaminate a community, you don't go home again. So we have to win this. From your mouth to somebody in power's ears, Donna, You are always a wealth of information, not necessarily good news, but better that we know than not know because then some action can be taken. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, the really crucial work that you're doing, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Donna Gilmore of org. As she pointed out, More than 2,000 of these, shall we say, if not substandard, at least very poorly thought out, dry cask containers for radioactive material are in use at nuclear sites around the United States. So the issues she talks about are not only relevant to Southern California and San Onofre, or Northern California and Diablo Canyon, but to all of the various nuclear reactor sites around the country. So no matter where you live, go to org and download the informational handout on the casks and the petition. Then bring them with you to Thanksgiving dinner to collect some signatures and spark some very interesting conversation. Donna also said if you have any need to contact her for information or clarity or any suggestions, you can do so through that website, which again is sananofresafety.org. Activist shout-out! Nuclear Hot Seat is coming to Chicago. I will be traveling to the Windy City next week to join with members of Chicago-based Nuclear Energy Information Service, NEIS, to attend and cover a series of public events being held by the University of Chicago to mark the 75th anniversary of the nuclear chain reaction experiment. The series of events entitled Nuclear Reactions 1942, A Historic Breakthrough and Uncertain Future, that's understating the case, will culminate in a two-day program on December 1st and 2nd. To provide balance to the pro-nuclear rah-rah that will probably be in evidence, NEIS is hosting events of its own. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education will be presenting along with Norma Field, Professor Emeritus of the University of Chicago, in an event entitled, Where Are the People? 
This will focus on the human toll of the nuclear age from Fermi to Fukushima. The event will be held in collaboration with the DePaul University Japanese Study Program and Yoki Miyamoto, Associate Professor. That's going to take place on Saturday, December 2nd, from 1 to 3.30 p.m. at Chicago's DePaul University Lincoln Park campus. And on Sunday, December 3rd, from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., Arnie also will be giving a presentation at the Third Unitarian Church near the University of Chicago. Links to these events and the exact locations can be found on the neis.org website, And, of course, we will be linking to it all on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 335. If you're in the Chicago area, shoot me an email at info at NuclearHotSeat, and let's see if we can maybe have a little bit of a meetup while I am there. Here's today's final thought. Thanksgiving can be seen as a mixed metaphor of a holiday as those of Native American and First Nations heritage find little to celebrate in the story of the pilgrims. Still, it can perhaps be better framed as an opportunity to simply express gratitude. From that perspective, as we head into Thanksgiving, I am grateful for many things and many people. For the nuclear reactors that have not yet melted down, and the activists who fight so hard, both to stop new ones from being built and existing ones from continuing to operate. For the researchers who are making the dangers of radiation known, and the filmmakers who are making the stories visible. For the Hibakusha, the survivors of the atom bombs dropped in Japan on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the moms in North St. Louis, who live with and fight against the legacy of that World War II nuclear weapons waste. For those who survived Fukushima, Chernobyl, Mayak, atmospheric bomb tests in the Marshall Islands, working at Hanford, Savannah River site, and on the USS Ronald Reagan, and those who didn't survive. For the activists fighting uranium mining transgressions in the American Southwest, at the Grand Canyon, on Aboriginal lands in Australia, in northern Saskatchewan, in Africa, and those who stand up at their local city council meetings to bring forward local nuclear issues. I'm grateful for the journalists and bloggers who compile the information and get it out so average people have a shot at understanding this complex, often terrifying story and the artists who convey the emotional pain of living with nuclear's forever legacy. For those who make phone calls, write letters and email, sign petitions, march, demonstrate, lobby, and lock themselves in front of nuclear transport with real estate lockboxes, and nuns who break into nuclear facilities to graffiti, turn swords into plowshares on the walls of buildings where nuclear weapons are built. For all of you who are still with us to fight, and those who have fought and passed, but are not forgotten, we are a robust, heartful tribe, a community of former strangers who found each other through this horrifying nuclear legacy and have come together to do what we can do, 
when we can do it, as much as we can do it. We may not always agree. Our methodologies may be different. But our hearts are in the right place. And in this international community of those who care, I am grateful that I have found my home with you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 21st, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and Sean Arclight, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Bob Alvarez, I always pull his comments when I see them on Facebook, newyorktimes.com, bizjournals.com, neis.org, sananofresafety.org, independent.co.uk, eurekalert.org, huffingtonpost.com, sunherald.com, seattletimes.com, cbsnews.com, commondreams.org, washingtonpost.com, bettergov.org, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, and yes, you are 123 countries and counting. You show your love for life on this planet Every time, you are a kick-ass defender of truth and supporter of nuclear awareness. That's you. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. And if you haven't yet, be sure to stop by, click like, post, share, and tell people at the Thanksgiving table about it. Now, if you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, you can contact us with their info or have them contact us. Either way, you'll use our email address, info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, once again reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, what you don't know can hurt you, and it probably will. All righty, you have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.